If you have a free travel card, did you know that you can use it on Expressway coach services all across Ireland? Travel from Cork City to Sligo Town, catch a flight from Dublin Airport, or visit the home of the Titanic? Adventure awaits! And with reclining leather seats and free Wi-Fi, getting there is half the fun. Where will you go? Hop on board or visit expressway.ie. Being future ready, it's a powerful feeling. Like getting nothing but green lights on the Friday commute home. Now we're moving. Feel powerful about your future. Talk to a financial broker about a pension powered by Zurich. Or visit zurich.ie. Zurich Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Mike Murphy here welcoming you to the first Senior Times series of podcasts. Over the course of the next months, it'll be my pleasure to interview and chat to some of Ireland's most prominent and interesting people. Among them, broadcasters Ryan Tuberty and Marty Morrissey, entrepreneur and businessman Dennis O'Brien, author Deirdre Purcell, producer and director of Riverdance John McColgan, communications specialist Terry Prone and many more. We'll also be hearing from experts on pensions, health, financial planning and mindfulness. Thanks to our sponsors, Zurich Expressway, Doro and the Sports Surgery Clinic. Hello and welcome. Before I introduce our special guest, John McColgan, I should say that we recorded the interview in February before the onset of the coronavirus. The Riverdance Company had actually commenced its 25th anniversary tour when the world went into lockdown. A few days ago, while we were separately cocooned, I asked John to record for us the consequences the virus wrought on the tour. Well, Mike, since we spoke uh, on our on our podcast interview, um, all of the Riverdance shows, we had two shows out, one in New York Radio City Music Hall and one touring in the UK. And on the 13th of March, we had to close both down and send the 200 dancers and crew home. And that was very sad for everybody. So we're all in lockdown and hoping to get back out on the road again early next year. John McColgan, thank you very much indeed. And now we'll hear the original interview as it took place. I'm delighted to welcome as our special guest today on our Senior Times podcast, John McColgan. John, of course, is one of the creators and the director of Riverdance, which, as everybody knows, I think, is celebrating its 25th amazingly successful year yeah. this year. Can I take you back um, many years, John? You, you you weren't born with a silver spoon in your mouth, and um, it didn't all come easy to you, because I know that in your childhood, um, you're are you the eldest of how many in the nine, family? Nine. Eldest of nine in yeah. the family. Okay, so your mum and dad were kept fairly occupied and looking after the lot of you. Yeah. But you didn't shine like myself in a scholarly way, did you? Um, I wouldn't say that. But no, yeah, <laughs> uh, no. I went to school in Wexford until I was twelve, and I was blissfully happy in a small country school. And I came top of the class in the primary cert, if you remember. What yeah, I remember was. the primary cert. Then uh, we moved to Dublin, and I w- went into Saint Saint Joseph's in Fairview. And my father was telling them what a great lad I was. So they they put me into an Irish class, and I had all very little Irish, so everything was being taught through Irish. So. I said, I can't do this. I can't, I, I can't deal with algebra and geometry and history and English through Irish. So then they uh, they put me into an 
a different class. But um, I really hated Joey's. I mean, I, I hated it with a vengeance. There was only one that was a brother of O'Rourke who was a kind man, taught English. But there, there were other teachers who the uh, slaps were very big. I yeah. remember I had uh, a Latin declension, and I always remember Dominus, Dominee, Domino. I had to, to learn that and come in and say it the next day. And you're called up to the front of the class and face the class, and you have to, uh, to say these declensions. And, of course, you're terrified. And every time you miss a declension or get it wrong, you get too really hard, slaps with a big black leather. So this teacher would put, bring the leather back over his head and bring it down with real force on your hand. And I got two slaps. I got it wrong. And then, of course, I couldn't remember anything. I got it wrong six times. I remember getting 12 slaps. But I refused to cry or do anything. I was just being kind of John Wayne chewing on the bullet. On the cud. <laughs> so uh, then I was uh, at a bicycle, and I was about four or five miles to my home and I was walking up Griffith Avenue and it was a, a late autumn evening and uh, I was thinking on the way, calmly enough, I was thinking I'm never going back there. I what age? I couldn't, I was uh, 14, 13, 14. I couldn't ride the bike because my fingers were all like big fat sausages, though my hands were swollen. I remember thinking to myself, yeah, I'm actually a good boy, and I wasn't so much as that I knew no different. I was naively good. I saw being good as, as something. So I was good in my family. I was good to my siblings, good to my mother. So, and I walking home, I thought, I'm not going back there to be exposed to that again, that I will make my way in life. At that time, I wanted to be an actor. I'll make my way in life, and, but I will not be exposed to that beating again. So... I told my mother, and she said, oh, God, love you, I don't know, and I've told him. So my father, my mother was kind of pitying me and understanding. My father went mad. And quite rightly, from a father's point of view, he said, you cannot walk away from education. is so important. And then the brothers came up to the house in <coughs> Sunbell Road, and uh, they their reason for visiting the house is they heard I wasn't going to go back. And they'd heard that I'd been quite badly slapped. So I don't know whether they feared that there'd be some action taken on the basis of that or not. And it even occurred to us, you know, to do anything mm -hmm. about it. It was, it was a given that you had to put up with it. But the brothers came up and they spoke to me and they spoke to my father. And the big thing was that they, they wouldn't charge me for my secondary school education. At that stage, you had to pay in secondary school. So they said that I was good lad and that I wouldn't have to pay if I went back. But what still amazes me about myself at that age, I was very calm, but I was very confident. I said, no, I'm not going back. So they, they did their best to persuade me. And my father was furious and I said, no, thank you, I'm definitely not going back. So my mother then, when we were together, because she said, what are you going to do, girl? I said, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'll get a job, any job for the moment till I get some income and until I can uh, see where I'm going to go. So anyway, I, I did that and I worked in factories, I worked in pubs, I worked in uh, Best on O'Connell Street and then Saxon on O'Connell Street because they paid five shillings a week more than Best. And I worked in the Yacht Pub in Rex End, I worked in the factory in Finglas, what was it called? Unidair, was it? 
and uh, I did all of that kind of work. And then at the same time, I was doing a DJ. I had a little speakers and a turntable. And so I was earning fantastic money doing DJ work. And I was also doing amateur acting. I was in an amateur group. And so I was in a group called the Young Dublin Players. So I did quite a lot of plays with them. And uh, then I got a job. Uh, and then I, I had been, when I started off as a, as a telegram boy delivering telegrams. So uh, you're let go at a certain age. And then I applied to, uh, because it was office, post office to Radio Aaron for a job as a boy messenger. And I was uh, interviewed by a gentleman called Mr. Omoroku. And uh, he said, why do you want this job? I said, well, I really would like to get into television just starting. It was 1960 or 61. And I said, I'd like to work in television. And if I'm here, I think I'll know what's going on. And I, they said, you have no chance of working in television. I said, well, I could, I could start. In <laughs> the typical the, the props, encouragement of the day. The props department, he said. You have no education and you have no skills, so I don't see you getting into television. And the end of that story is, which I've told before many times, I was in and out of the actor's studio. And I loved, they were recording, very, and I was in and out. Where? In, in Henry Street. In, Henry, in Radio yeah, Aaron. Yeah, yeah, there was a, there was yeah. a full-time rep. And, uh, and you, were, you were delivering. You I were, was delivering poster on the You building. were delivering post. That's where you and I met. Yeah, yeah that's, that's right. right. But anyway, go that's ahead. Right. Yeah. So it was, it was 1916. Two, yeah. One, yeah. 62. Yeah. And uh, I would always go into the actors, and they were very kind. They brought me in, and but they knew I wanted to be an actor, so they were very encouraging. And then I got called into Mr. Moroku, and uh, he told me it's, it's been brought to my attention that you've been fraternizing with <laughs> play actors. <laughs> and he said, if uh, you are caught at this again, he said, this is not what you're paid for. He said, you will be summarily dismissed without any further ado. So I said, okay. So um, I still managed to sneak in to the actors and one of the producers, a guy called Peter McGuire, put me in a children's play. And so I was delighted with that. But the, ch the check for five guineas went through the office and I was outed. Uh, and Mr. Uh, Moroku comes. Yeah. He called me again. He said... Uh, he said, hey, you have two weeks' notice to, to leave. I said, OK. And at the same time, long story, but I'll finish it now. At the same time, I had applied to RTE Television for the post of Vision Mixer. So I'd applied not in the hope of anything because it was very high important people like junior clerks and junior technicians who had applied. But I, I, I suppose what I did was, in hindsight, clever. I went out and I found a guy called Max Mulville, who was the senior Vision Mixer, and I asked him to asked him to teach me about it. So I went out to him quite a number of times and he showed me exactly what it was about. And I suppose in the interview for all the other interviewees, I'm not sure if they did that, but the question they would ask is, what is a vision mixer? So I had a very well articulated answer to that. So um, I went, long story short, I got a letter within a week saying, dear Mr. McColgan, delighted application, could you start as soon as possible? And I was being paid, uh, I was five or six pounds a week as a boy messenger, and the vision mixer was 12 pounds a week. So I remember seeking, seeking an interview with Mr. Murphy, and he said, yes. I said, I'd be very grateful if you would uh, let me go immediately. This is Mr. Murakuda. Yeah, yeah, okay. The television service <clears throat> okay. would hire me as a vision mixer. It's the same organization. 
they didn't know I'd been fired <laughs> by the radio people. Yeah. And he was shocked to find out that I was now being hired by the television people. So that was the beginning of and my career in RT television. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not subscribe to Senior Times, the magazine and website for people who don't act their age. Or maybe you have a loved one or a friend who you know would love to read more. You can buy a subscription and have the magazine delivered direct to their door. To subscribe to Senior Times, visit the website at seniortimes.ie and like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash senior times. Now here's your chance to win a top-of-the-range smartphone designed specifically for an older person. Doro are market leaders in creating phones with clearer sound and larger text, one that's protected if it falls or can alert others if you do, and makes staying in touch with family and friends simple and enjoyable. At Doro, they are dedicated to helping seniors live a better life without compromise. Doro helped make ageing an independent, secure and rich part of life. After all, age is just a number. All you need to do to win a top-of-the-range smartphone, kindly provided by Doro, is to go to the website www.seniortimes.ie and follow the instructions. To see the full range of Doro phones, visit www.doro.com. The lucky winner will be announced on the Senior Times Facebook page. Doro Phones. Making technology easy for all. Being future ready, it's a powerful feeling. Like being poised to click at 8.59 and bagging tickets to the gig that sold out in 30 seconds. Got them. Feel powerful about your future. Talk to a financial broker about a pension powered by Zurich or visit zurich.ie. Zurich Life Insurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. If you have a free travel card, did you know that you can use it on expressway coach services all across Ireland? Travel from Cork City to Sligo Town, catch a flight from Dublin Airport or visit the home of the Titanic. Adventure awaits. And with reclining leather seats and free Wi-Fi, getting there is half the fun. Where will you go? Hop on board or visit expressway.ie. Um, I'm not going to go through your career because... you be here all night. <laughs> be here all night, yeah. Um, but uh, you did so many things. You and I did a lot of stuff together yeah, on the did, likes of did. Mike, the live Mike. We did Murphy's America together. You produced and directed it. Yeah. Uh, we did Murphy's Australia together. Yeah. You were the director on it. And um, you did so many other things, um, as well as you uh, went over to TVAM. I and you got involved in... You, why did you go from it was RT just, I, I was, I'd been in RT for 20 years, and I remember thinking I was head of entertainment in RT2. Do you remember we did the opening we night together? We did the opening together, yourself yeah, and Terry Wogan yeah, and that's Diana right. and yeah. all of that, Val Dunnigan. But I, I, I was um, with Moya by then, and I thought, I don't want to wake up one day in RT and be getting a clock or a medal or a watch or something and find that's to be here. So I thought if I had enough get up and go to challenge myself in a different arena. Uh, and so I sat down with Moy and I wrote to half a dozen television stations, got the names of head of entertainment and so on. So uh, I eventually through a friend of mine who was there at the time, a guy called Noel Green, who's no longer with us, but he was in TVAM at the time, and I wrote to him, and he recommended me to Greg Dyke, at the time was head of TVAM. 
So I went over and uh, I immediately got a job as a director. Now, this was two or three steps below where I was in RTE, but I didn't mind. So I was started off on the road with Chris Tarrant and Roland Rash doing By the Seaside. Mm. So I did all these little inserts to the show by the sea, which, I, which was fantastic. And they were amazed that with two cameras I could get such coverage, but I'd been doing that for 20 years. So then going on from there, I became, I was appointed by uh, Mike Hollingsworth uh, as the weekend editor. So I was working with uh, Michael Parkinson and David Frost. And uh, I'll just tell you a funny story. Yeah, just as a matter of interest, yeah, I'm interested. How did you get on with the two lads? With those two, I, I love David. He was a kind of a, it was a veneer, but he was a real gentleman, a very charming. And my mother came over to visit me, and I introduced her to David Frost. She sat and watched the show that I had directed, and that uh, he. So uh, she said, uh, he said, you know, exaggerating a bit for her benefit. He said, Mrs. Mc. Colin, your boy is the brightest, one of the best people I've ever worked with. I'm really fond of him. And she said, oh, you don't have to tell me, David. Sure, Mike Murphy and Gayborn love him. <laughs> she wasn't impressed. She wasn't impressed. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and how about Parkinson? How did you Parkinson was Parkinson? a crabby old bastard. <clears throat> uh, <laughs> Not to put a finer tooth on. Yeah. And I remember... Uh, he had, there was a famous five in the beginning of TVM. Yeah, was, Angela Rippon, and, and David Frost, Michael Parkinson. And uh, history man, Robert Gears had been a major thing. And here he was on morning television, you know, at eight o'clock in the morning. And he was very discontent about the whole thing. And he had some respect for me because I'd been in the business a long time. He had no respect for the young researchers and... and uh, um, yeah, but we did lots of interesting work. We did a, a kind of a, this is your life on a Saturday morning, a version of it. So we did Elton John, George Best and Van Morrison and all those guys in the morning. And uh, so the, the, we, they would have guests and they would bring in the guests. So that was very successful. And then I did a show with Chris Tarrant, which is about great English eccentrics. So we had all these mad fellas coming in. Um, if you don't want to speak about it, I'm happy enough if you don't. But you went through, um, at one stage in your life, in, in your personal life, yes, I remember, and yeah. before you met Moya, yeah. you went through one of the most painful divorces I think I ever witnessed. Yeah. And it, re it was horrific, really. You, you went through a bad time. You were I broke. Did, I did. I remember I did. You, were, you were, I think you were back living with your mother, if I'm yeah. not yeah. incorrect. And it was so painful, wasn't it? It was very painful. I had two children at this stage. And... Um, I was very young when I got married. I was 21, I think. But uh, it obviously wasn't, uh, it wasn't right from the beginning. I knew that, but I thought, well, you've made your bed and lie in it. So I, I went through it. And then I think you were not involved, but tangentially when I went to do Murphy's America with you, mm. uh, she said, if I don't go on this trip with you, I, I'm leaving you. I said, oh, sounds good to me. But uh, <laughs> if you don't go, <laughs> you don't, yeah, she wanted to go. She wanted to go on the trip. Uh, yeah, that was it. Around America, and I just said absolutely not. So uh, that was uh, a kind of uh, the beginning of the end, uh, and things were really, really hard. And then uh, eventually, I moved out into a guy called Peter Darty's house, and I was in one room in his house. 
for a while. And it was very painful. Um, it, I had great difficulty seeing the children. I, I was in and out yeah. of court three or four times to for access. Uh, and then you I was were, paying. Yeah. I, I accompanied you once or twice in the court. Did. Like yeah, that. Yeah. And, uh, and also, I remember too, and it, it must be so painful, um, the two kids um, actually at one stage said, to you, we're not allowed to talk to you. That's right. Like that. Well, I remember going out on Christmas Day with... Uh, presence and all of that from when I was I was due to be at the house we built a house in Ardmore Park in Bray be at the house at 11 so I arrived at 11 and uh, the, the kids were gone and I didn't know where and she was gone but uh, I figured out that she was down with her sister in Wicklow so um, I rang but she said I wasn't coming they didn't want to see me so it was heartbreaking mm. and uh I remember one time going, leaving them back when I had access to them. I used to visit with Colin Wilkinson, who lived in Bray. I was leaving them back, and I was in the middle of reading a, a storybook for Justin. So we were reading it chapter by chapter, maybe. He, he was, was what age? Six, maybe. <clears throat> and uh, I went to the door to go up in, in room and read the story. Shit, I wasn't allowed to come in, which was against the court ruling. So Justin picked up what was there on the doorstep. was a milk bottle. And he threw it at the wall and it smashed in a hundred places. And he was so... But anyway, uh, and then the, the worst thing was I, I went to London with Moya TBM and I'd arranged to take them on a trip to France. And uh, all everything was booked. And uh, the day before I was to go to pick them up, she said, uh, you are not coming, they don't want to see you and you haven't paid the gas bill or something. So... Uh, that was devastating. And then subsequently I found out that she left them standing on the doorstep waiting on me and I never... And she told them, that's your father. He doesn't turn up. He doesn't care about you. So anyway, that was yeah, difficult for a number of years. Yeah, the poor years. unhappy woman is yeah. past now. She has. She got helper. She was very unhappy. Yeah. In, in, the, in the light of all that, John, I mean, I suppose what I'm kind of trying to illustrate is that you... You did not. Uh, you you didn't inherit anything that made you wealthy, that made yeah. you successful. It it was very, very, very hard grafting. What is it like now? Now that you have been successful, I know you've been very good to your siblings. By the way, I do yeah. know that that you've yeah. been very, very kind to your siblings. Um, what is it like now to to be wealthy? I, I, you don't even like using mm. the word, but mm. being wealthy, being successful. Compared to looking back on those very, very hard days, what is it like for you now? Owning things, properties, etc. I never thought I'd be at that stage. I was always confident and optimistic. Even during all that, I thought this too will pass. And I always thought there was something down the road for me. There was a golden egg of some sort, whether I'd be an actor or... Uh, and at that time, I was I was I had been going through Vision Mix. I was director, producer, had won a number of awards in RTE for my entertainment programming, and I had the fortune to work with you and so on. So that wasn't a bad career. I, I loved working in television, and I enjoyed it. And that's why I went to England just to see could I make it in in a, in a different arena. And uh, we did. And then I set up with Moya Tyrone Productions, which is the most successful television production company in Ireland and is still going strong. And uh, then I suppose what can, we at that time were talking about buying a cottage in Wicklow and living a country life, which I had been very attracted to from having lived in Wexford when I, I loved it. We were talking about getting off the treadmill and I would make enough money as a freelance director 
uh, and I had a reputation. So we were actually looking at properties. What uh, stage was this at now? Was, was this just pre the River, pre the Eurovision? Okay. So we were looking at like, beautiful cottages and romantic on the edge of rivers and so on. So um, I forgot the, the chronology, but in any event, uh, that's what we were thinking of at the time because I had even at that bit like yourself, I was tired of television. I thought if I see another girl coming down the steps in a big dress and singing a song, I, I couldn't bear it. <laughs> and uh, I, want, I really wanted to be a dr- drama director and I did direct a couple of plays in RTE. Yeah. Gabriel Byrne was in one of them. And, uh, but I was known for entertainment, and it's very hard to get out of that and enter drama because you're good. And, but in any event, uh, Riverdance or uh, the Eurovision came along, and uh, the, the Interval Act, the Riverdance had changed everything. Yeah. So once we saw those 4,000 people standing on their feet, uh, without any prompting and giving one of the loudest uh, ovations and cheers, mm. we knew that that it had the potential to impact an audience. And um, the house, I, 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 I seem to recall that you got you brought in investors. Okay, there is a show in this. It's yeah. been a success in the Eurovision. There yeah. is a show in this. Now we have to raise the money. Yeah. So RTE came in. RTE one of the came in. who else? Uh, one Tom of the banks. Tommy Higgins, yeah. He, he, Ticketmaster. Ticketmaster, yeah. And Morris Cassidy came in, but they, they came in for, and, uh, and there were a few people who had promised investment and it just never appeared. And we had to make a break one day to say, we don't have enough money to put this show on. So we mortgaged our house against the balance. It was about 800,000. And our house wasn't worth eight hundred thousand, but um, so I wasn't that fearful about it because you're very brave. But I knew that there was really something here, and all we had to do was fill the point for a week. Another week, I thought we definitely. So from that time in the Eurovision, in one year we had the big show up, which was very quick in show business terms. It was up the following year in the point, and uh, I remember. Our dear friend Gay Byrne, on the late, I was on the Late Late Show with Flatley and Butler in, in November, maybe, and the show was in, was in uh, February. And he said, this is a great idea. He said, this is a perfect Christmas gift for your parents or for somebody. And once he said that, the tickets really started oh, to sell. Yeah. Yeah. And well, it, it sold out, and then we went to Hammersmith, and that sold out. And we went back to Hammersmith for the second time and that sold out. And then we went to Radio City Musical and that sold out. We were the longest running show ever to play at Radio City. We played six weeks in a 6,000-seater theatre the first time we were there. And we're going back to Radio City for the eighth time. Being future ready, it's a powerful feeling. Like putting your out-of-office on for your holidays. Start time now, end time two whole glorious weeks from now. Happy days. Feel powerful about your future. Talk to a financial broker about a pension powered by Zurich or visit zurich.ie. Zurich Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. If you have a free travel card, did you know that you can use it on expressway coach services all across Ireland? Travel from Cork City to Sligo Town, catch a flight from Dublin Airport or visit the home of the Titanic? Adventure awaits. And with reclining leather seats and free Wi-Fi, getting there is half the fun. Where will you go? Hop on board or visit expressway.ie. 
Michael Flatley leaving the show, that was a bit controversial, wasn't it? It was, On, it on was. the eve of the opening in London, wasn't that right? <laughs> it was. Uh, in, in hindsight, time has softened everything. It, part of me doesn't blame Michael, and, and at the time I certainly did. But we were, he was appearing on every television station in London about this, him potentially not having signed his contract. And he was playing poker and he thought that we would eventually collapse because they were asking him things like, well, who else can do, oh, there's, there's no one else can do what I do. They'll never be able to put it on without me. And this was the day before. And that night, there were television crews outside uh, the theatre in, in Hammersmith. And there were, would the show go on? Would Flatley be on? And on that same night, Barry Clayman, who's our pr- pr- promoter and has been for years, was outside nervously walking up and down. And Jean Butler came around the corner on crutches. He said, Jean, you're joking. This is a joke? She said, no, 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 I'm injured. So uh, we all went down that night without Jean Butler and without Michael Flatley. And Moya and our dear friend, uh, Joe Negan, were out in the lobby. They couldn't even look at it. And at halftime, they saw people going to the box office. And they thought, oh, that's it, they're looking for their money back. But when they eavesdropped, People were going to the box office to try and book again, to go again. And who went in? Who Colin stepped Dunn, in? Colin Dunn. And, and the, they, 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 knew, they knew the part well enough and they could dance what it we well did enough. For the, for, we did for the first world. We, we divided the part among three dancers. So there was three okay. days. It was, it was okay. too much for somebody yeah. to learn. But yeah. we were rehearsing with Colin Dunn and with other people while Michael was... Uh, so he was very shocked when we said, no, thank you very much. So he went full on a full media force, they stole my life and they've ruined my thing and they've hit my they've hit uh, they've hid my shoes in the dressing room, all sorts of nonsense. So he was very, very devastated. But to give him his due, he went and found John Reed, who used to manage uh, Elton John. And John Reed managed him in the beginning. So he put up a show, Lord of the Dance and, and Lord of the Dance was a huge success. Huge success, yeah. And he wouldn't have been a huge success if he'd stayed yeah. with us. We couldn't have lived with the star. Because yeah. if the stars got on, people would say, oh, I want to see so That's right. So we don't have any names It needed to be an ensemble. Show. It's yeah. an ensemble yeah. show. Like if there are leads and there are three male leads and three female leads in every show and they rotate. Go back to the, the success. What has it meant to you? Um, the financial success. Financial success has, has been fantastic. We've had a great time. We have houses in America and uh, in, in Ireland and in, in uh, France. And we don't anymore. In so much as that you get so excited, you know, you think you're like a child in a sweet shop doing stuff. And eventually you have too much stuff yeah. and this takes an enormous amount of minding. It costs an enormous amount to tax, insure and do whatever you have to do, housekeepers. And so, then you're feeling guilty if you don't go there. Yeah. And then we went every year to a place on Martha's Vineyard, which we loved. And the boys went to acting camp and painting camp and we loved it. But we went for... 12 straight years and then one day I thought I can't do this anymore I remember going into a conversation with the Martha's Vineyard crowd who were lovely and we liked them very much but it was exactly the same conversation I had the year before (laughs) (laughs) and I can't do this anymore so we we haven't been back since we still have a little house there called Little Jaws because it featured in the movie Jaws so it's right on the ocean there and that's about it Um, it was also, I suppose it doesn't often come out, it was a lot of the time it was really, really stressful. I mean, there was a huge weight on your shoulders of dealing with people. 
dealing with the show, making sure it was right. So there were sleepless nights and there were, you know, I was married to the producer, I was the director, so that we, we that was a stress on us as well because we didn't always agree. We did most of the time. But there was tensions there. Uh, and uh, so the, the, and there were times, and then there were wonderful times. We had great times in Martha's Vineyard. We went to Thailand. We went, you know, we went everywhere we wanted to go. Um, but it, it was not, there was a price to be paid. Mm. Mm. It's been a fascinating run, hasn't it, for you? I mean, when you look back on your life, it has been a really colourful one, that there have been the ups, the downs, amazing yeah. successes, oh, some things that weren't so successful, but it has been full of colour. It Does retirement feature in your mind at all? I'm thinking about semi-retired. This but really my last big challenge has just happened because after 25 years, the show inevitably was slowing down and I thought we either let it wind down, you know, it would keep going for another few years, or I tried to do something to reimagine, reinvent the uh, Riverdance from Riverdance 25. So I set about coming up with a new look, new costumes, new choreography, and a new recording of the soundtrack. So that was what you saw in the three arena, and people who'd seen it many times, or a number of times since the beginning, thought it was better than ever. It was felt. I wanted to feel new and fresh and not 25 years old. And I wanted people under 30 to go and see it mm. and think it was cool. So um, modest as I can be, I think all those things were achieved. And the show is now touring in North America, doing incredible sold out business. And we just did a week in Belfast and that was sold out. Uh, I did Heartbeat of Home, which is another show, which was mm. got rave reviews, but uh, difficult to get the promoters to buy it because when they know it's from the house of Riverdance, they said, well, see, we know Riverdance. This is not a known brand. Mm. So we've got rave reviews of the show and there's a possibility working with Live Nation at the moment to put it out again at the end of this year. Health-wise, how are you? Good. Diabetes, uh, arthritis, blood pressure, normal stuff. Other than that. Other than that. <laughs> All right. Listen, John McCulgan, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank and you. congratulations on yours and Moya's success. Thank you, Mike Murphy. Well, after our chat, John told me that one of his unfulfilled ambitions is to host his own podcast. So... We set to work immediately, and hey presto, the man came up with a formula which we're about to launch, the contents of which he described to me a few days ago. The show will be called My Tunes, uh, which is um, me rumbling around in my life in music as a listener and as somebody who, at five years of age, used to look into the radio to imagine I could see who was singing, and from then... All through my life, I'm an avid collector of records and music, and it goes from country to classical to rock and roll to Elvis to comedy to Peter Sellers. So uh, a very varied selection with the story of my life interwoven through the songs and the music, and I hope there's something there for everybody. But one thing, you have to be over 50 do not listen to this program if you are not over 50. Be warned, you young ones. Well, knowing John for as long as I do, that'll be a podcast well worth listening to. And you'll hear it with us very soon on seniortimes.ie. If you have a free travel card, did you know that you can use it on expressway coach services all across Ireland? 
Travel from Cork City to Sligo Town, catch a flight from Dublin Airport or visit the home of the Titanic. Adventure awaits. And with reclining leather seats and free Wi-Fi, getting there is half the fun. Where will you go? Hop on board or visit expressway.ie. Being future ready, it's a powerful feeling. Like pedalling to the top of the hill and knowing that now it's just freewheeling all the way to your front door. Feel powerful about your future. Talk to a financial broker about a pension powered by Zurich or visit zurich.ie. Zurich Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Welcome back. Um, Do you get pains in your knees? Do you get pains in your hips? Are your elbows hurting you? Do you find it difficult to bend down? Can you touch your toes from a standing position? No, I can't. Um, But if if you are interested in hearing a little about that, about... Well, let's concentrate on knee and knee arthritis and hips and so on, because I have Andy Franklin Miller of the Sports Surgery Clinic here. Andy is consultant physician in sport and exercise medication. And Andy, these must be the most common of all, the hip and knee. Uh, call them arthritis, call them, uh, I, I don't care what you call them, but, the, but they're problems for an awful lot of us. Absolutely right. And you know, you're right. Osteoarthritis to the doctor means something very different from the patient. If we tell a patient you've got osteoarthritis, many will see doom and gloom, a life in a chair, and a stopping everything that they love. But really, osteoarthritis is a medical term talking about the joints that are wear. And of course, all joints will have some wear as we get older. Um, And so, A joint itself, any bit of the body that moves, has a covering of hard cartilage, a little bit like the phone screen or the glass of a phone screen. Um, And so gradually over time, that glassy surface will thin, um, some of the surface will degrade and crack, um, and then eventually, in some patients, part of it wears out. Um, As that process goes on, some of the symptoms that we get are pain and joint swelling. and, and that's a problem because it limits our ability to do what we want to do. And, and often the thought process is, well, if the joint is worn out, I should do less on it and become less active um, and just manage the pain. And we know that actually medically... That, that's, that's a very natural reaction, isn't it? I mean, I'm restricted in, in my movement, therefore I'm not going to move as much. Absolutely. And people are often very fearful, understandably, of what they might see I'm going to make it worse. Absolutely right. Am I going to hasten the need for joint replacement surgery further down the line? And patients will often come in um, having been given a diagnosis of of osteoarthritis, thinking the only step for me is surgery and the only step is a joint replacement. And clearly for some patients, towards the end of the line of a joint, when they've tried lots of other things, that probably is the stage where, in terms of getting that activity back, replacing the joint is the best option. You would say, go and have an assessment done before you decide, I I need a new hip or knee. Is that right? Well, actually, medical advice along the way is that there is often a lot of stages before that joint replacement is there. And it's not just about pain relief, and it's certainly not about doing less. Um, We know that, actually, the way that joints work in the body We divide up the work we do between multiple joints. So your knee might be troublesome, um, but your hip and your ankle can certainly do a lot more. In order to do that, we need an exercise program in order to change the way that the body takes load. We can take 30% of load away from the knee joint and give it to the hip and the ankle if we make them stronger. Imagine water in a bowl. If we build a bigger bowl, the water's got nowhere to slip out the surface. 
And so that's really our first step here is to build strength capacity in the joints that aren't as badly affected. Okay. So people don't fret. Have it, have it looked at before you've made the decision, I need a new hip or I need a new knee. Absolutely. If, if that's the case. And uh, do you in the clinic, do you do um, hip replacement, knee replacement? Do you do all these things in the clinic? Absolutely. With over 45 dedicated orthopedic surgeons, um, there is a specialist for the joint that's troubling you. Um, and our sport and exercise medicine physicians look after the patients on the journey towards that surgery. And there are options in terms of injectable therapies into the joint to work on both trying to improve the surface of the cartilage um, and also yeah. to remove pain in joints that really are commonplace treatments that sit before the need to think about surgery. So in other words, the last resort is surgery. Very commonly. And in the surgery nowadays, I'm assuming that it has become so modern and so slick that it is not the terrifying operation that it was 20 years ago. No, and it's important that actually the more active you are going into that operation, we know improves the outcome. So often there's a lot of care goes into trying to get some objective data, how strong you are, how good the muscle quality is around the joint that's about to be replaced. Um, but also the aftercare, after the joint replacement surgery. Uh, we're one of the few clinics in the world that looks at how you might learn, relearn to walk and how you distribute that load. And so it's almost as important how much we look after you before and after yeah. the operation with a, um, a joint lab service that can compare you to other patients and give you some numbers to match your rehab. I, I suppose the fact that you deal with so many sports people helps you in that because th their rehab is so important. You've got to monitor the rehab and you've got to make it as quick as possible uh, wh while monitoring it, don't you? Absolutely So right. this, this would go for your ordinary everyday patient like me, wouldn't it? Well, Same thing. It's one of the big areas of crossover. And so at the Sports Surgery Clinic over the last 10 years, uh, we've been pioneering work in something called 3D biomechanics. It's where we put on a set of reflective markers onto joints and can calculate using the same technology that Pixar might do or Disney when they're animating a movie. We can apply that same technology to understand where the forces and loads go. And over the last seven years, we built a database ranging right from our international elite athletes who will fly into the clinic to complete their rehabilitation with us, taking up that service. That's where their um, knowledge and our understanding of managing the very elite athlete, professional footballers from the UK, Australia, or the US, um, applies to everybody because that data is compared to yours. Now, it doesn't mean that you need to get to the same level of that superstar necessarily, but actually we understand the steps and the faults and that can guide yeah. your therapist, whether you've traveled up from Cork um, or from overseas to have your joint replacement yeah. surgery at the clinic. And we can use that objective numbers, the numbers that that system develops to mm. help guide your rehab to make it better, quicker and more long lasting. Take a hip, for example. If you could, uh, you're going, you've now decided that uh, somebody's hip has to be replaced. Um, how long is it going to take before you're back on your feet? So usually you're in hospital for about a week, so four or five days, and most of that really is getting stability, getting the muscles to work again. Um, the real um, the challenge there is to get strong, get the joint working mm. um, as it is, and it can take you two or three months to get um, back to full levels of activity after hip joint replacement. However, the stronger you are beforehand, 
the more guidance along the way that we can give you um, in terms of improving that can speed up that process and make it more robust. And often people struggle to have a marker. How do you compare yourself? Are you comparing yourself to the guy you knew from the golf club or the woman from tennis um, and, and comparing yourself unfavorably against them? And that's really what we're trying to do in terms of enhancing the care after a joint replacement so that we can give you an indication whether you're ahead of the curve, on yeah. track, or below the curve and need to spend a bit more time and also to guide your rehab no matter where you are in the country. Supposing you're not too fit, how long is it going to be before you're back to something like a normal life after a hip operation? Well, that's a good question because it depends what you mean. So if, you're, if you've are if you never done a day's exercise in no, your life... No, suppose you've done a bit of exercise, but you're, you wouldn't be fit. So because of the hip, you mm. can't be. No, know? absolutely. And so that's the, that's how, long would it, how long would it take approximately before you're back uh, operational, so to speak. Yeah. So, look, by three months, we'd expect three you months, to be able yeah. to do yeah. your normal day-to-day -day activities comfortably. Yeah. That's not bad. Um, and some people certainly outstrip that. They'll be much yeah. faster. Some a little bit longer, but generally... Okay. If, uh, so, in other words, the sports surgery clinic, you, I, I can, or any, any of us can make a phone call to the sports surgery clinic and say, look, I'm worried about my back. Can I come in and talk to you and see what the story is? That's, That's it? Right. Yeah. Great. Okay, Andy Franklin Miller of the Sports Surgery Clinic. Thank you very much indeed. Pleasure. That's all from us for this week. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast and that you'll join us again. The Senior Times podcast is produced by Conor O'Hagan and brought to you by Senior Times magazine in association with Zurich Expressway, Doro, and the Sports Surgery Clinic. This is Mike Murphy saying goodbye for now.